Dear Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for our place in this building and our chance to, to meet and teach and listen and study and be abs- just uh, absorbed in your word tonight, Father, just a chance to study things that are challenging. And uh, Father, you, you encouraged me this week when somebody mentioned that they, um, they never get a chance to study this book, it seems, and they can't find many places that do, and yet uh, they were pleased that we were giving it to them. And Father, it uh, doesn't seem like much of a privilege, doesn't seem that special, just seems like we should be here. Because it's in the middle of your word, and why wouldn't we be? But uh, it reminds me, Father, that uh, the grace you give in, in giving us this opportunity is not a grace that everyone receives. For reasons of your own, there are men and women who uh, aren't able to do as you have granted us the opportunity to do, to study in this way. And we don't want to take that for granted. Thank you, Father. We give you that praise. And Lord... There are also those who have access to the Word and study it routinely, but it makes no impression on their heart. It just is knowledge to be collected. And uh, God forbid that's us, Father, if we don't let us do that. Give us a heart that wants to move better in better ways from what we learn to hear and to do and to, to live out what we know um, so that we are a light in a dark world, that we are somebody in our own walk who reflects you in ways that please you. Uh, Father, you've been so gracious to our church over the last year. You've brought us to a, a great place in our in our walk with you and in this physical building we have and with the relationships we have and with uh, the quality of, of ministry that you're doing through us, Father. We're, we're just excited to see it, and we're excited to pursue it in deeper ways through your word. But, Father, just give us a, a continuing humility about it so that we will uh, never think ourselves the, the cause of it or that uh, we are the end of it, that it is pleasing to us and that's enough for us. Uh, Let us have a hunger, Father, that uh, matches your own love for the world and for those who need to hear the the gospel. And let tonight's study just propel us along that path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're reaching the end of the first half of the book of Ezekiel. I define the first half as that half of the book which relates to judgment in the times that Ezekiel was living. But this first half, as I call it, it's actually 66% of the book, so it's a little more than half. It ends in chapter 32. And in those 32 chapters, here's roughly what we've studied. You have a man, Ezekiel, given this difficult task of telling his countrymen, time is up. Israel had engaged in gross idolatry. They had repeatedly, over the centuries, spitefully ignored the Lord's warnings that he brought through the various prophets that have come along. And now after centuries of that, Ezekiel says to the exiles that are already sitting in Babylon, the time has arrived for their city and their temple to be destroyed. And he's communicated that message in a variety of ways. We've now seen this. If you've studied from the beginning of the book, you'll remember all of the odd things that God has asked this man to do over that time. But of course, the exiles who are with him have ignored him, or they've made excuses, or they have argued against what he's saying. Meanwhile... The glory of the Lord has exited the temple back in Jerusalem, and the Babylonian army has descended upon it and sieged it. And that siege will last for three years. And we've been studying in the most recent chapters things that God told Ezekiel while that siege was underway. But after the battle is over, the remnant, the final remaining remnant of the Jewish people, will make their way back to join the rest of the exiles in Babylon. And Israel, to most observers, will appear to have been taken off the earth forever. It will appear to be the end of that nation, destroyed by the very God who made them a people and gave them the land in the first place. That's what we learn 
so far. Now, as we get into the second part of the book, which is the part we're all so anxious to get into, I think, should be anyway, we watch God revealing to his people that the story has not, in fact, come to its end. Rather, there is a glorious future awaiting Israel. You can almost chart the book of Ezekiel like you would a path through mountains where it starts relatively high and you just keep going down and down and down and you reach this low point in the book from which everything else is back up again. And we have just reached that low point. But before we get to the other side of the mountain, so to speak, you have to finish the prophecies against Israel's enemies. And the greatest of those enemies, Egypt, is the one we're looking at now. Egypt's worst defense against God's people was introducing them to idolatry. And that's the reason why the Lord gives them the longest rebuke. We've been studying that now. It's about four chapters overall. Last week we studied the first of uh, first three of what will be seven messages to Egypt across these four chapters. In what we looked at last time, the Lord promised to judge Egypt in the future through a unique period of abandonment of the land. This was going to be a 40-year period where neither man nor beast would ever set any foot in the land. And when we studied that last week, we concluded that the fulfillment of that has to be future state. There's just no historical uh, event that could fit the description God gives concerning that moment. And what that tells us then is the first 40 years of the thousand-year kingdom on earth that we know is coming, in those first 40 years, the land of Egypt and the kingdom will be left empty as a testimony against that nation. After which time, those who are Uh, assigned to live in Egypt, will be allowed to go there and remain there for the rest of the thousand years. But even then, God said they will be the least nation among all the nations in the kingdom. That's the prophecy concerning Egypt. Now, you also remember we had this interesting pattern that developed out of those prophecies. You had this far-term and then it went to near-term pattern where there were two uh, prophecies juxtaposed repeatedly. One about what would happen in the kingdom to this nation, followed by one about what would happen in the immediate future. And then it went back to looking at the long term again, and so on. So you have the, the judgments of the kingdom, followed by judgments concerning how Babylon or other enemies would attack Egypt to carry out God's judgments in the near term. And now we reach the fourth message to Egypt, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh today. Uh, and this message is an argument of logic against the sense of security that Egypt had in its day. And the oracle begins with a comparison to another great power of the age, Assyria. Now, as we look at these judgments today, the overriding theme is going to remain the same. And I like to think of it in terms of our own nation, not because our nation is necessarily comparable to these situations in any particular way, except one, maybe, which is that we are also a world power. We are also a nation that, from anybody's point of view today, you couldn't imagine us falling apart. You couldn't imagine us being destroyed or taken off the face of the earth. It just doesn't seem possible as we would look at it today. Keep that in mind as you study what God was saying to these world powers in their day. Just because I think that makes it a little bit more relevant for us. Ezekiel 31 is where we start tonight. Verse 1. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high and its top was among the clouds the waters made it grow the deep made it high with its rivers it continually extended all around its planting place and sent out its channels to all the trees of the field therefore its height was loftier than all the trees of the field and its boughs became many and its branches long because of many waters as it spread them out 
All the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all great nations lived under its shade. So it was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots extended to many waters. The cedars in God's garden could not match it. The cypresses could not compare with its boughs, and the plane trees could not match its branches. No tree in God's garden could compare with its beauty. I made it beautiful with the multitude of its branches, and all the trees of Eden which were in the garden of God were jealous of it. All right, well, let's take another look at this. This is an oracle that he says dates to June 21st, 587 B.C. It's about two months from the previous message that God gave Ezekiel. So there's been a two-month gap. And this oracle is said is directed at the Pharaoh of Egypt, who was a man at that time, historically, was a man called Hafra. He was the Pharaoh. And we know Ezekiel's writing in Babylon, not in Egypt. So we have to assume that God had some way to deliver this message through messengers of some kind to the Pharaoh. But if nothing else, it's to those in Israel that they would understand what God has planned for their enemy. And the point of this oracle is very easy to see. It's stated right up front, verse 2. What's the point of the oracle? Well, whom is Egypt like in its greatness? That's the point. That is, Egypt was undoubtedly a great power. And the nation had been great in that way for thousands of years. Uh, I know from our point of view today, we like to think that we've been around a long time. But we can't put a candle to what really old, powerful world powers have, have done on earth. In this case, Egypt was a world power for thousands of years. They were a world power in Abraham's day. Not to say nothing of this time. And in Ezekiel's day, they were one of two world powers, along with Babylon, and they vied for domination with Babylon at this time. But there was one big difference between Egypt and Babylon. Babylon had been chosen by God to be his instrument to judge both Israel and Israel's neighbors, their enemies. So Babylon was the one who would win out because God was behind Babylon, and Babylon would be the one who would ultimately judge Egypt. So, at least in its initial stages. So the question God is asking Egypt is simply this, who do you think you are? Or another way to say it is, just how great do you think you are? It's a rhetorical question, not only because the Pharaoh couldn't have answered it if he wanted, but because the Lord goes on to answer it. He gives the Pharaoh an answer. He compares the greatness of Egypt to another world power of history, uh, the nation or the, the kingdom of Assyria. Now, Assyria was the world power that preceded Babylon on the world stage. For centuries, Assyria was the world power. They competed with Egypt in their day, just as Babylon does in this day, but they dominated the world scene, and they dominated Egypt to a certain extent. And yet, at the time this is being written, Assyria is gone. At the time that this is written, Babylon had already conquered Assyria after Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power. But in its day, before then, it was glorious. So in verses 3 through 9... The Lord uses figurative language to remind the Egyptians of just how great, how truly powerful the kingdom of Assyria had been in its day. He says Assyria was like a a dominant cedar tree in Lebanon. Now, old growth cedar trees in Lebanon are gone today. If you go looking for them in, in Lebanon, you won't find any. And our concept of a cedar tree is not very impressive because of what we know of when we think of cedar, right? We tend to swear right after somebody mentioned cedar in South Texas, Um, or at least we want to. And and the region of of Lebanon was deforested centuries and centuries ago. That's why we don't see them today. But the Bible is filled with references to the cedars of Lebanon. In fact, might interest you, a good trivia question to ask somebody sometime if you want to stump them, what vegetation is the most commonly mentioned vegetation in the Bible? 
And the answer is cedar trees of Lebanon. That is a fact that testifies to just how impressive those trees were, that they would have that common a mention. You might think of them as something like the giant redwoods of California, on that kind of a scale. They reportedly stood about 80 feet tall and were beautifully symmetrical, almost like uh, perfectly carved columns of stone. And they possessed these thick canopies of branches and boughs at the top. So uh, the, the cedars were the, were the keels of the massive ancient warships of the time. The temple was built with the cedars of Lebanon, partially. The wood came from that source. And in verse 3, the Lord's using this cedar, this, this majestic strong tree, as a picture of the greatness of Assyria in its day. In the way that a giant cedar's branches, in that day, the old cedars, would shade or protect a large patch of ground underneath it, so did Assyria shade, so to speak, or cover much of the world with its power and influence and protective power. So it was the top nation. It was like a cedar reaching to the clouds. Now the point here is obvious. As great as Egypt was or thought it was, it wasn't the first or even the only nation to have achieved such greatness or prominence. And the, the Lord's using the picture, you notice he uses a picture of a river to talk about how the, the tree was nurtured by a river. That's a direct comparison to Egypt. Because in verse 4, the Lord says, Assyria was made strong by water that fed it like a river. And, and literally, he's talking about the Tigris, which was the river of Assyria. And it contributed greatly to Assyria's power. Not only was it you know, water for fields and crops and the like, but it was also a trade route. It gave them great access to the sea. Likewise, Egypt's greatness was in large part owed to the power of the Nile. They, you know, the Nile not only provided enough water to, to feed Egypt, it provided enough water to feed most of the world. In fact, in Roman times, the, one of the major trading routes of Roman shipping was to and from Alexandria to bring grain from Egypt to the rest of the Roman Empire. They were the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. That's how much they could produce. So the Lord is drawing Egypt's attention to the similarities between its own stance, its own power source, and this prior power that had a very similar kind of source for its strength. Verse 5, he he describes birds nesting in the branches to describe how Assyria uh, supported and protected so much of the known world by their power in their day, same as Egypt was doing in its day. And, in fact, you remember in the Bible how often people flee to Egypt for food when there was famine everywhere else because they had the water source continually. So in summary, in verses 6 and 7, the Lord says it kind of in a summary way. He says, The nation of Assyria was a sight to behold. It was the center of the world. It was the strongest nation. It had unmatched power. No nation could compare with Assyria when Assyria was at its height. And yet, Assyria had a day of reckoning. Assyria did not last. Verse 10. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it is high in stature and has set its top among the clouds and its heart is haughty in its loftiness, therefore, I will give it into the hand of a despot of the nations. He will thoroughly deal with it. According to its wickedness, I have driven it away. Alien tyrants of the nation have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land. And all the people of the earth have gone down from its shade and left it. On its ruins, all the birds of the heavens will dwell and all the beasts of the field will be on its fallen branches. So that all the trees by the waters may not be exalted in their stature nor set their top among the clouds, nor their well-watered mighty ones stand erect in their height. For they have all been given over to death, to the earth beneath, among the sons of men, all those who go down to the pit." Thus says the Lord God, 
On the day when I went down to Sheol, I caused lamentations. I closed the deep over it and held back its rivers, and its many waters were stopped up, and I made Lebanon mourn for it, and all the trees of the field wilted away on account of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I made it go down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the well-watered trees of Eden, the choicest and best of Lebanon, were comforted in the earth beneath. They also went down with it to Sheol, to those who were slain by the sword, and those who were in its strength lived under its shade among the nations. All right, and here's the point. If the Lord is contending with the pride of Egypt by showing how he contended with the pride of Assyria. So, like all nations, God had raised Assyria up at a point in history for a purpose. All nations in history who have ever been raised up at any level have been raised up by the Lord for a purpose. And Assyria was called by God at its point in history to become great principally for one reason, to discipline the northern tribes of Israel. So the king of Assyria did indeed conquer northern Israel and Samaria, but he did it as God directed him to do it and permitted him to do it. And you hear a summary of this, uh, just to kind of give you some bits and pieces from Scripture, because it would take too long to give you the whole story. But in 2 Kings 18, you hear a summary of how God used Assyria. 2 Kings 18.11 Then the king of Assyria carried away Israel, speaking of the northern kingdom, carried away Israel into exile to Assyria and put them in Halal and on the harbor and the river of Gozan and in the cities of Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they would neither listen nor do it. So it's the same basic thing you're seeing going on with Israel now, the kingdom of Judah. They didn't listen to the commandments of God. God took them out in exile. But the Lord also told the king of Assyria, that's as far as you go. You can have northern Israel, you can have Samaria, that's all part of the northern kingdom. That's it. Don't go down to Judah. That's not part of the deal. This was only a judgment for the northern tribes at this point. He had a different plan for how to judge the tribes of Judah. It would come at a later time. It would come, if necessary, by a later force. But after doing what God asked him to do with the northern kingdom, the king of Assyria still wanted more. So in Second Chronicles 32.1, here's another tidbit, you hear this. Now listen to the phrasing. After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities, and thought to break into them for himself. See the language there? So he he was faithful to God's command when he took the first part of the nation. Then he had this thought of, to himself, you know what, I'd take them too. Now the difference is, God let him do the first one, God didn't let him do the second one. So the Assyrian king in his greed, forgetting who had given him the power in the first place, assumed he could just keep going south and do what he wanted. And then we hear in Second Chronicles 32, 20, But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. So, when the king thought to go a little further than he was supposed to, not only did he not win, but we learn in 2 Kings that 185,000 men of his were killed outside the city of Jerusalem by the angel of the Lord. We all know who that is, right? It's the incarnate Christ, or pre-incarnate Christ. 
So Jesus goes out warring with the army of Sennacherib. By the way, this is a picture of an end times event. If you go back and study Isaiah online, you'll, when we get to this section where Isaiah covers this, you get to see this is a nice picture of what's going to happen to the Antichrist. But moving on, notice in verse 11, the Lord says, He would give Assyria now into the hands of a despot of nations. And that's Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar will thoroughly deal, he says, with the rebellious, arrogant Assyria who thought they could do what they wanted instead of what God told them to do. So he says Assyria's wickedness would be cause for God to send a greater wickedness against them. And then he goes back to the cedar analogy, and he says this alien tyrant is going to cut Assyria down like a tree, leaving it splintered on the mountains and so on. Branches, bows everywhere, referring to the alliances that crumbled with them. You know, the nations of the earth that were dependent on them for safety are now just living on the ruins of it, like animals. Notice in verse 14, he says that all the trees... Now remember, in this analogy, what is a tree? It's a nation, right? So he says, all the trees by the waters would not be exalted in their stature, nor be set among the clouds. Rather, these trees have been given over to death, to the earth beneath, among those who go down to the pit. Here's the point. Assyria had no inherent power. And therefore, the the people of Assyria had no inherent power. They, like all nations, all trees, in other words, they live to serve God. They have no power apart from God. And in the end, all nations come to an end. Because all men and women come to an end. And, And he starts to personify the nations. He says they go down to the pit like people go down to the pit. Okay, All nations have a beginning. All nations have an end. The thing is, when you're in the middle of living in your nation, you don't imagine the second half of that. But they all do. They all will. And we know that because the kingdom comes one day, and that's the only one that matters. Jesus rules the whole world. There's no other king. There's no other kingdom. So by definition, they all go away. Sooner or later, they all go away. And when it happens is a matter of God's timing, no different than when they came into power. So no man, and by extension, no nation, is powerful enough to avoid death, to avoid its end, which is a reminder that everyone's power and every nation's power is an illusion. It is only true because God has permitted it for a time. It is not inherently true. There's no inherent power on earth except God's. It's a temporary assignment by God. And in the moment that God is finished with our service or with a nation's service, it comes to its end. Simple as that. You know, it's funny how people think they're going to live until they realize they're not, right? There's, you, you know instinctively you don't live forever, but you don't think about dying tomorrow. And nations think they're going to exist forever until suddenly they're not there anymore. Assyria's end, it ends here with God saying Assyria's end was a shock to the world. And that's because in its day, Assyria looked unbeatable. Who was going to beat it? In verse 16, the Lord says the nations quake at the fall of this cedar. And that's because when Assyria fell, well, then other nations that profited or depended upon it for security were tumbling with it. And it's kind of a picture here of the way a big tree falls in the forest and knocks a bunch of smaller trees down on the way. All right? And so those nations that aligned themselves with Assyria were brought down with her, like a tree falling on other trees. And they go down to Sheol, it says in the analogy. Um, while those who were oppressed by Assyria are set free. They're, like, they're described as if they were small trees being covered by the shade and unable to get sunlight. And then the big tree falls, he says, and now suddenly they have light. They are, they're freed from that oppression. So there's all of these consequential effects of Assyria going down. So what's the point here again? Assyria was every bit as great as Egypt in its own day. And in fact, you could argue Assyria was greater in its day than Egypt was. And yet, consider what happened to them in the end. 
When they stopped serving a purpose for God, God brought them down. It only had power because God gave it power. When the Lord withdrew his hand, the nation had nothing. So we're talking here about an ancient superpower disappearing overnight at the hands of Babylon, which in our modern context, I think, is comparable to the Soviet Union. You know, it wasn't that long before the fall of the Soviet Union that if anyone had asked you who was the chief rival of the U.S. on earth, it would have been that nation. And most of our defense spending, most of our economic policy, most of our foreign policy was directed at stopping the growth of that one adversary. And then almost in a blink of an eye, in a matter of months, it didn't matter anymore. Now, other things came to fill the gap, but my point is that was unimaginable a few months ahead of time. Even before we could really see it happening, it happened. All right? And not to make comparisons to any other nation, because everybody's situation is a little different, but it just reflects what we're studying here. That it, at a point in time, God decided that was the end of that nation. Time to move on. He could say that about us tomorrow. And I think, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of Christians who have confused or conflated patriotism with Christianity. And as a result, they see them so inextricably linked that they wouldn't know what to think of the God that lets their prized nation go down the tubes, if that should ever happen, forgetting that this isn't their nation. Biblically speaking, our country's up there, not down here. So we're assigned to a place on earth for a time, but that's not our place our heart's supposed to be. Our heart's supposed to be up there. And I think that's the danger of looking at this world in, in ways that assume solidity when the Scriptures make clear it's fluidity. God flowing through history, moving nations back and forth, getting to where He wants to go. There's nothing wrong with being patriotic, but just don't do it at the expense of your biblical perspective. So, the point is, Egypt should not be deluding themselves by thinking that they were invincible. They certainly had existed for longer than Assyria did, and they are a powerful nation, but they can disappear as fast as God wills it. And that's exactly the final point the Lord makes to him in this part of the oracle. Verse 18, he says, To Egypt, he says, To which among the trees of Eden are you thus equal in glory and greatness? Yet you will be brought down with the trees of Eden to the earth beneath. You will lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those who were slain by the sword. So is Pharaoh and all his hordes, declares the Lord God. So he asks the Pharaoh, he says, Which of the trees of Eden are equal to you? And the term Eden here emphasizes the garden But think of it now as a garden of nations. Okay, so uh, like trees planted by God in the Garden of Eden, nations have been planted in the world by God to exist for a time. And so the comparison is, who among the nations of the earth is your equal, Egypt? And the answer would come back, very few if any. They were singularly super in their power. And yet he says, as he makes that point, nevertheless, you're coming down. No one's so big, I can't bring them down. You will be slain, he says, you will lie with the uncircumcised, which is to say with the barbarians, the outcasts. Uh, The Egyptians practiced their own form of circumcision. And so for them, it was a way of distinguishing themselves from the unwashed masses of the world. It made them a superior group of people, they felt. Babylonians, on the other hand, they did not practice circumcision. And so for an Egyptian to die at the hands of an uncircumcised person, like the Babylonians, for example, and to furthermore, he says, you're going to die unburied, These are the worst and most unimaginable consequences for an Egyptian. Because in in Egyptian thinking, if you were killed in that way and left unburied, then it prevented you from entering the afterlife. And so it was this this dead end in in existence. You couldn't bear that thought. And yet, that's what God says he's going to do to Pharaoh and all his hordes. Now, not only was this prophecy intended to put Egypt in its place, but it's also being directed, as you know, to the exiles in Babylon, to the Jews who are hearing this. 
And there might have been among those in the, in the exile some who thought to themselves, well, we're here now and Babylon's on top now, but we know there's Egypt and they're big too and they're powerful too and they've been our allies in this fight. Maybe they'll come and rescue us. You know, if you're in captivity, you'll look for any glimmer of hope. Well, this oracle spoken through Ezekiel to the exiles cancels out that possibility because God's saying they're going away too. And there'll be no excuse, no rescue. You're going to be here for a while. This is the end of the way. That brings us to the final messages written to Egypt, the first of which is a lamentation in chapter 32, or a eulogy, you could say, for Egypt's fall. And I'm going to read verse. I'm going to read the whole eulogy, which takes us to the first half of this chapter, verse 1 through verse 10. It says, In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you were like the monster in the seas, and you burst forth in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled the rivers. Thus says the Lord God, Now I will spread my net over you with a company of many peoples, and they shall lift you up in my net. I will leave you on the land. I will cast you on the open field. I will cause all the birds of the heavens to dwell on you, and I will satisfy the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your refuse. I will also make the land drink the discharge of your blood. And uh, as far as the mountains and the ravines will be full of you. And I will extinguish you. I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. And I will set my darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among the nations into the lands which you have not known. I will make many peoples appalled at you, and their kings will be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them, and they will tremble every moment, every man for his own life on the day of your fall. All right, this oracle and the one that comes after it in the second half of this chapter, it comes in the final month of the twelfth year of, of exile. This one comes on the first of the month. The next one comes two weeks later. So these two come in rapid succession. Based on these dates in this chapter, and based on what we'll see in chapter 33, which is next chapter, next week, you learn that this oracle comes to Ezekiel several months after Jerusalem has fallen to Nebuchadnezzar in the third attack. And it comes a little less than two months after the exiles in Babylon first learn of that fall. So earlier in that year, the city fell. Then they took a time for the word to get back. And about two months before this moment, the people who were in exile in Babylon heard that our city is gone. Walls are gone, city's gone, temple's gone. It's a disaster. If the exiles have heard that way back in Babylon, then we know certainly the Egyptians have also heard the same. And that news probably gave the Egyptians some reason to celebrate. At least it meant there was one less rival on the world stage. You know, they wouldn't have to compete with Israel anymore. And so now what you're seeing is the Lord sending a message to the exiles and to the Egyptians to make sure that any celebration is premature because there's more coming. It's going to take a few more years for things to come to pass, and a lot longer for some things, but likewise the Egyptians are going to see their day. And in verse 2, Ezekiel is told, Speak a lamentation over the Egyptians, specifically over Pharaoh. And remember last week, you saw Ezekiel recording prophecies against Egypt. And remember I showed you how he moved some things out of order? That is, the order in which they're written in this book is different than the order in which he heard them. So he heard some things late that he moved up in the way he wrote them. Why did he do that? Well, we saw last week it was to try to show this pattern that we talked about, the pattern that drew our attention to tribulation and to the Antichrist. But there's another reason evident here. 
That is, this is now the end, the last chapter that he writes about Egypt. But these prophecies came a little earlier than some of the other ones. But because this is a lamentation or a eulogy, you put the eulogy at the end. You put the lamentation after the disasters. So he has purposely saved the lamentation to the end because it's the footnote, if you will, to all of the disaster that was predicted in the earlier chapters. Okay? And he begins by saying to Hophra, the, the pharaoh of Egypt, you're not a lion. You think you're a lion because that makes you look good, but you're not a lion. You're actually a monster. The Egyptian sphinx, remember the, you've seen the sphinx, right? It's half lion, half man. Well, the, the head is the head of the pharaoh. The body is a lion. And what the scripture here is reflecting is that's how pharaohs saw themselves. That's why they had these statues made to, to, to reflect that. They saw themselves in that way. And the Lord says, no, that's an incorrect picture. The reality is you're more like a, a river monster, something foul that comes up out of the water. And it was so symbol of, of how Egypt has this negative influence on the world. They're not this lion like Judah that can rule the world. They are the opposite. They're an unclean creature. And as a result, he says, I'm going to catch you out of the water with a bunch of people using a net, like you're a fish. And it would be manned by a group of people that probably represents either the Babylonian army or later the Persian army. Um, But there's a little interesting catch in the way he's saying this. The Babylonian account of creation, their, their myth about how the world was created... It has a piece there where a god named Marduk uh, captures a sea monster in, their, in this pre-creation moment, as they imagine it. And that sea monster is Tiamat in their pantheon of gods. And Tiamat was the god responsible for the chaos that preceded the creation. And so Marduk captures and kills the sea creature Tiamat with a net... And as a result of catching it with a net and killing it, order is presented in the creation instead of chaos. And so it appears that the Lord is sort of making liberal use of Babylonian imagery here, their culture, to remind Israel that he is sovereign over creation and as a result over the nations, and that he's going to execute that sovereignty in this case. And now the question is, how did it actually take place? Well, here again, you struggle as you look at history and try to find something historical that maps to some of this description. We know that there was an invasion of Egypt by the Persians. Now, they came after Babylon. And that resulted in a a pretty widespread devastation of the nation of of Egypt. But the imagery in verses 4 through 6, you know, lives lost, many lives lost, blood spilled throughout the land of Egypt, and so on, it's a bit rough. I mean, the battle in 526 B.C., historically, uh, we call it the Pelusium Battle. Uh, That's when the Persian Empire defeated Egypt. But the destruction in that battle doesn't really equate to what you hear described here. I mean, unless you were prepared to accuse the Lord of of exaggerating, the facts of history diverge at this point from the text. Furthermore, the descriptions in verses 7 and 8, well, they really go off in a new direction. I mean, you got heavens being impacted at that point, right? Stars darkening, uh, sun not shining, moon not giving its light. Okay, well, that... The lights of the heavens, the stars darkening over Egypt. There is no historical precedent of that since the Exodus. And obviously this is all post-Exodus. So that reminds us that there's something going on here that's like the judgments of the Exodus, but they don't have any historical reference from where we sit today. Interestingly, though, the judgments of Exodus are forerunners of the judgments of tribulation. Here again, if you're interested in that, go study the Exodus study we have online. We show you how what God does in the Exodus prefigures what he's going to do in the times of tribulation. But still, that's, that's past history at this point, as he writes this. 
So, just as we saw last week in our study, these kinds of internal references preclude a historical interpretation. I can't say that what he's describing here, in terms of what's coming for Egypt, that that was fulfilled through a Babylonian attack, or even the Persians attacking. Because even though there was bloodshed in those cases, or there was some devastation, there was not the degree of it, and there certainly wasn't the supernatural components to it that he says will be there as well. So... Without that historical reference, you only have one other place to go, and that is you see this as still future state, something yet to happen. And specifically, you look at things like the heavens being shaken, and you run immediately to the judgments of tribulation here again. And so we see this pattern again, right? Revelation mentions things like blood flowing through valleys of mountains. In fact, Armageddon will produce 200 miles of flowing blood. By the way, if you look at 200 miles on a map, that is the distance from Jerusalem, where the battle takes place, to the Nile Delta. Furthermore, we see the sun going black for periods, the stars falling, the moon changing. Those are all aspects of tribulation as well. Um, Those fit the descriptions you see here, and there's nothing else between them in history to match. We have no other events of history, save the moments of Jesus' crucifixion, that would meet any of these definitions, much less all of them. And so that would be, again, a reminder of what we've seen with previous oracles, that there are moments in here where God is talking about what he's going to do to Egypt, but he's looking way ahead at what he's going to do in the tribulation. And I want you to notice particularly verse 9. Verse 9, the Lord says that there will be many other nations who will be brought to destruction along with Egypt. Now that clearly points to something bigger than merely an invasion of Egypt. In verse 10 it says, the whole world would be frightened. At Egypt's fall, well, there's no evidence that at Egypt's fall into the Persians, the whole world was disturbed. And that description becomes even more interesting when you go to the second part of this chapter. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, The sword of the king of Babylon will come upon you. By the sword of the mighty ones I will cause your hordes to fall. All of them are tyrants of the nations. And they will devastate the pride of Egypt. And all its hordes will be destroyed. I will also destroy all its cattle from besides many waters. And the foot of man will not muddy them anymore, and the hooves of beasts will not muddy them. Then I will make their waste settle, and I will cause the rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt a desolation, and the land is destitute of that which filled it, when I smite all those who live in it, then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is a lamentation, and they shall chant it. The daughters of the nations shall chant it. Over Egypt and over all her hordes, They shall chant it, declares the Lord God. So now the Lord tells Egypt that the king of Babylon would be part of the judgment. Now at that mention, you're you're starting to look back historically again. I mean, you just naturally go to thinking of who? Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so that starts to make you think. And some commentators, if you go look at the texts that are out there, you'll find people who, based on that reference and some others, will just run immediately to say this had to have been fulfilled by Nebuchadnezzar. But they'll also add, if they're honest, there is no historical record of it happening, They just assume it must have happened because God said it did. Well, either that or God is speaking about a different moment. In verse 12, the Lord promises that the pride of Egypt would be brought low. Hordes, which refers to the the armies and the peoples of the nation, cut down, cattle destroyed. By the way, cattle was a god in Egypt. But then notice that, as we said last time, the Lord says, neither man nor beast will set foot in the land. Here again, that's a kind of reference that doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. There's either an animal in the land or there isn't. And there's no historical example of of Egypt being completely devoid of living creatures. But that's coming. Water, it says, would settle. What that means is the water that's in Egypt, this is one of its most famous attributes, right? The, The Nile. 
the water that's in Egypt would settle, which means it would go into the ground. And in its place, you would find something running like oil. And the land would become a desolation, and all who live in the land would die, he says, verse 15. So the mentioning of the king of Babylon would suggest a historical record, but we know this didn't happen, or at least we have no record of it happening. And even if it did happen in some limited form, the, the details here do not match anything. I mean, there's no way that some of these details could be historical. Nothing like them's ever happened. And so you're back to the same conclusion then. This has to be forward-looking into the time of tribulation. And in tribulation, well, then you certainly do find devastation on this scale. All inhabitants dying in a given area, for example. And even the reference to rivers running like oil starts to make sense in the context of tribulation. Because we're told in tribulation that the two witnesses have the power to turn water into blood. All the waters into blood. And what is blood going to flow like when it's in a river form? A lot more like oil than like water, right? And just in general, the references to massive death and destruction fit the idea of something more akin to tribulation. If so, then, what about this reference to the king of Babylon? Well, that reference also fits. If we assume that it's referencing the future king of Babylon, not the prior kings of Babylon, that is, the Antichrist, is the king of Babylon in the time of tribulation. And if so, then what we're learning is the march of his armies as he moves into conquest and consolidates authority and power over the nations during the first part of tribulation, which is what we hear happening in tribulation, in the book of Revelation, well, then it would seem that that would be part of how God judges Egypt. That Egypt is one of those nations devastated by the movement of the Antichrist outward in control of the world. And apparently the Lord uses the Antichrist to judge Egypt in this particular way, just as he used Nebuchadnezzar in his day to judge other nations. And so, in the day that will come to the world, in the time of tribulation, there will be a chant or a lament over the loss of Egypt. Because that nation will fall to the Antichrist, and as such, I suggest to you that it might be the signal to the world that this man's conquest is real and unstoppable. That it may be that in their day, the thought that anyone could conquer Egypt from where this man comes from, is a sign of real power and real ability. Kind of the way that Hitler took over Poland. You know, at the speed and the right way he did that, the world woke up really fast that this guy had more power than they anticipated. He was serious. He was going to make a big problem. And with that, Ezekiel then moves to the final oracle about Egypt, which serves, in a way, as a summary of all the others. Verse 17. In the twelfth year, on the fifteenth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man... Wail for the hordes of Egypt and bring it down, her and the daughters of the powerful nations, to the netherworld with those who go down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and make your bed with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of those who are slain by the sword. She is given over to the sword. They have drawn her and all her hordes away. The strong among the mighty ones shall speak of him and his helpers from the midst of Sheol. They have gone down. They lie still. The uncircumcised slain by the sword. Assyria is there, and all her company, her graves all around her. All them are slain, fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the remotest parts of the pit, and her company is round about her grave. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. Elam is there, and all her hordes around her grave. All of them slain, fallen by the sword, who went down uncircumcised to the lower parts of the earth, who instilled their terror in the land of the living and bore their disgrace with those who went down to the pit. They have made a bed for her among the slain with all her hordes. Her graves are around it. 
They're all uncircumcised, slain by the sword, although their terror was instilled in the land of the living. And they bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit. They were put in the midst of the slain. Meshach, Tubal, and all their hordes are there. Their graves surround them. All of them were slain by the sword, uncircumcised, though they instilled their terror in the land of the living. Nor do they lie besides the fallen heroes of the uncircumcised who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war and whose swords were laid under their heads. But the punishment for their iniquity rested on their bones, though the terror of these heroes was once in the land of the living. But in the midst of the uncircumcised, you will be broken and lie with those slain by the sword. There also is Edom, its kings and all its princes, who, for all their might, are slain by the sword. They will lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit. There are also the chiefs of the north, all of them, and all the Sidonians, who, in spite of the terror resulting from their might, in shame went down with the slain. So they lay down uncircumcised with those slain by the sword and bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit. These Pharaoh will see, and he will be comforted for all his hordes slain by the sword. Even Pharaoh and all his army, declares the Lord God, though I instill a terror of him in the land of the living, yet he will be made to lie down among the uncircumcised along with those slain by the sword. Even Pharaoh and all his hordes, declares the Lord God. Repetition is a much valued aspect of Eastern writing, Hebraic writing. Western minds don't take to it as well. We find repetition annoying. We find repetition annoying. <laughs> and, and yet, for those in the day and in the times in which this is written and the place is written, it's a way of poetry. The idea isn't to say exactly the same thing twice. The, the, the idea is to say the same thought twice with slightly different wording each time. But that gives a sense of power of, of emphasis. And the emphasis here is clear because the repetition makes it so. This is the oracle that, that uh, Ezekiel receives two weeks after the one we just studied. So this is his final one. And in a bit of tongue-in-cheek here, the Lord pictures Egypt in her final resting place. She's alongside all her enemies who have long been judged or earlier been judged by God. Each nation personified as if a nation could literally go down into hell. Okay, And it starts with the Lord mocking Egypt for all her supposed strength and beauty. Nonetheless, look where it got you. You're down here in the pit. And the people of the nation, it says, will be destroyed in battle. Over and over, you see, with the sword, with the sword, with the sword. So the point is, it's one thing to say, like, the Soviet Union went away just because it kind of wanted to. You know, everyone got tired of doing what they were doing, and they kind of dissolved. Right? That's still going away, but it's different. What the Lord is saying here is, while you're at the apex of your might, I'm taking it away. You're going to have somebody come against you in power, and in power defeat you, when you could or thought you could stop it. And that will be a lesson, as you see it repeated over and over again, a lesson that no one has any real power. It's a fictitious illusion. It's simply God propping one up until he's ready to prop the next one up. And then it goes on from there. So he says the people here in verse 21, he says they're slain by the sword, they're given over to the sword, they're with the sword. It just indicates the Lord appointing these outcomes. In verse 21 he says, The strongest among the mighty nations of the world would speak of Egypt and its helpers as barbarians brought low with the rest. And among those who see Egypt brought low are, are the countries like you see Assyria. Now Assyria, it says, is her slain or strewn all around uh, hell, as it were. They're, they're buried in every corner of hell. And the rest of them are all marveling at how a great kingdom like uh, Assyria could even be there. Elam is mentioned. Elam was east of Babylon in its day. 
it may be, and this is my view, but I don't know if I'm right. I think Elam is a reference, because of its physical location geographically, I think it's a reference to Persia. So in other words, I think it's actually looking forward. So it's saying you had Assyria, then you have Elam, that's Persia, which followed Babylon. Then you have after that Meshach and Tubal. Those nations occupy present-day Turkey, which is the Alexandrian Empire, if you think about where Greece is located. So Greece is, is modern-day Turkey is not Greece, but in the way that Meshach and Tubal are, are referenced historically, it's that whole region. So that could be the center of the Alexandrian Empire. Um, and they ruled for a time. They're gone. And then at the end, the Lord mentions a few former powers of the region like Edom, the chiefs of the north, the Sidonians, which were part of the Phoenician Empire. The point is always the same, though. Each of these world powers rose for a time in that region. For a while, they were the big dog. And then they're gone. And then another one. And then they're gone. And you don't have to be a brilliant student of history to look at that pattern and say, I don't think any of you really had any power. You know, we would talk in human terms as if, well, the rise and fall of nations is just the normal course of things. Well, that doesn't answer the question, why? Why does any nation stop being powerful? You know, we can talk about it in terms of cause and effect, economic, political, and the like. There's whole books written about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, right? But there's still, ultimately, no you know, simple answer for why a nation can go from being that powerful to nothing. It, it happens because God appoints it, is the answer from Scripture. And he does it through a variety of means, but it's still him doing it. And as a result... The point is, no one in Egypt should be deluded to think they're going to escape that pattern. And likewise, Israel should trust the Lord to bring those judgments in the course of time and not be worried if they haven't seen it yet. It's going to happen. And then you see the ironic, this little ironic mention at the end. You see the king of Egypt being said to be comforted in verse 31 by the sight of so many other mighty nations in Sheol when he gets there. You know, Egypt shows up and he's like, oh, look at the rest of you down here. That, that makes me feel a little better. Because, obviously, he's not comforted to be in Sheol, but it kind of would dawn on the leader, if you want to personify it as the leader, the Pharaoh showing up in hell, he kind of looks at everybody and goes, well, at least I'm not being singled out. At least I'm here with all the rest of you guys, you know, because I know I'm not any worse than you, you know. The, the idea is that, in each case, they once were the terror of all the living, and now they're reduced into death in a form that makes everybody equal again. You know, death is the great equalizer. So, this scene is obviously contrived, I mean, God is not speaking in ultimately in, in literal terms here. All, this is a metaphor, but it serves to make a point and a reminder, which is the reality of judgment. The reality of judgment. This is the fate for so many in the world. And I think there's elements of this that do hold true, like a conscious existence, an understanding of circumstance, uh, an appreciation of who else shares it with you and of what it means to be in that condition. A timelessness that has no end, therefore no hope. That is a consistent picture or consistent description of this place in Scripture. Certainly, as chapter 32 ends then, you come at this point in the book to this sense of hopelessness in a way, certainly for Israel's enemies, for anyone who would descend there, but for the exiles as well. You know, as they sit where they are, the last of their peoples now coming up with the final wave of attack with the terrible news of what happened over three years of siege, followed by the death that came with the attack. I mean, it was horrible stuff. We've heard a little about it in here prior, in weeks we've talked about this, but cannibalism in the city and uh, you know, brutality about the soldiers as they attacked and so on. 
you hear these stories and you think, how much worse can it be for us? How much worse will it be for the people of Israel? How much more has God forsaken us? This is the first time in their history that they are entirely outside their land. And if there was anything that would rock the life of a Jew more than this, I can't think of it. That the entire nation would see their city gone, their temple gone, and all of them outside the land. If there was any reason to think God had forsaken them, it would be this. Because it appears at least to them, at least for the moment, that he's forsaken his covenant with them. Because they mistakenly associated presence in the land with God keeping his covenant. It is in the sense that ultimately he will have to have them in their land if he is to be faithful to the covenant. There is a, there is a point in time when it will be fulfilled. But he's not unfaithful in an interim period if he keeps them outside the land. In fact, ironically, he's faithful to take them out of the land because he said he was going to do it if they didn't obey the covenant. So God is fulfilling a plan that includes exile, but the people of God sitting in the exile itself probably don't feel that way and certainly don't appreciate that. They have nothing but despondence at this point. They have hopelessness at this point. And as I said at the outset tonight, this is the emotional low point of the book of Ezekiel for all who are being mentioned here, including the exiles. From this pit of despair, the Lord now lifts Israel up one step at a time from chapter 33 on. And that's a process. It's not as though he jumps into chapter 33 and says, Behold the glory of the kingdom! No, he's not going to move them from zero to 60. What he does in the chapters that follow is he raises their eyes off their present circumstances and onto a vision of glory in the kingdom one step at a time. And of course, along the way, he's going to emphasize the importance of obedience in light of how they've come to where they are because of disobedience. So we start that process of upward movement, if you want to call it that, next week. All right, so come back next week. We don't, I'm setting your expectations a little low here because I don't want you to show up next week thinking, oh, goody, we're going to hear all about the glory of the kingdom. Well, you will in time, but it starts with the Lord sort of moving their heads back in the right direction to get them ready for that. We'll get a little taste of it next week and then a lot more to come after that. Heavenly Father, we just acknowledge you, Father, in your sovereignty and in your wisdom over all the things that go on in this world, Father, in our lives and in the lives of everyone else. And we confess, Father, that in our day-to-day goings and comings, we don't think as, as much as we should about your sovereignty in our life. And that's why we have fear of things we shouldn't fear. And that's why we try to control things we can't control. And that's why we turn away from your word at times and seek to live as the world would tell us because we, we just don't trust and our faith is weak. Thank you, Father, for the reminder that everything has its appointed day and purpose and season and time, and we are in your care at all times. And if we would listen, you would show us a way that need not be tossed to and fro by what goes on in the world. And we desire to live in that kind of peace, Father. So I pray your, your word tonight would help speak to each heart here in a way that would just reassure us, reassure us of your control of all things, and we can trust in that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>